Health Minister Dix and uh, PHO Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, just held a, an impromptu presser, because usually these happen on a Tuesday, but it's Monday. And uh, Richard Zussman was the one who alerted us all to it on a tweet over the weekend saying, heads up, this is happening on Monday at 11. So we tuned in and I want to play this one clip of Dr. Henry, because I think this is one that is going to have a lot of people putting their ears to their radio, because booster shots are a hot, hot topic, certainly. And very much so with regard to those who received two doses of AstraZeneca. Uh, here's Dr. Henry just a few moments ago on the subject of boosters and specific to AZ. Have a listen. People who receive two doses of AstraZeneca will be receiving invitations for their booster dose at six months. And this may be sooner than other healthy adults in the community where we know there's very good, strong protection that's lasting well. All right. So that's Dr. Henry with some uh, clarification there. When we need clarification on all the ins and outs and happenings of what's happening in COVID-19 here in BC, we go to Richard Zussman, our global news journalist based at the legislature. You know him, you love him, you follow him on Twitter because you want the facts on this story. And Richard, you always bring the facts. It's so good to connect with you. Jody, my pleasure. And one thing to note as well, I think the reason it was Monday this week is the province is trying to squeeze in two COVID briefings this week. We'll have a modeling presentation on Thursday. We also expect another provincial announcement tomorrow. There's one this afternoon around uh, clean drug supply. So I think part of it is not they were trying to rush information out the door but more they're trying to align what is going to be a very busy week here. So I think we shouldn't read too much into the fact that this was Monday, but you have picked up on the big news of the day, which is this news about the boosters for those who have received two shots of AstraZeneca. I want a full disclosure here, Richard, for anybody who follows me on social media, they know that I got my booster dose of Pfizer on Saturday. Uh, I wrote about it at the orca.ca, my whole journey, you know this, about my being my dad's essential care at long term. It was January 8th that I got the phone call from Delta View asking me to be a part of the firewall. So I was at that moment where I'm like, hey, wait a minute, am I waning? And if I'm waning, should I be (laughs) worried? And and. Dr. Henry did get into that as well. Should we be getting booster shots if the rest of the world hasn't even had dose one yet? So I want to get to that with you as well. But first, can you unpack the AstraZeneca piece with us just a little bit deeper? Because there are a lot of people going, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Yeah. So there's about 83,000 British Columbians who have received two shots of AstraZeneca. Uh, What happened last week is the province announced a full booster plan and had priority groups and had secondary groups. And part of that secondary group uh, was basically anyone who's healthy who received a vaccine. They will receive their dose eight months after their second dose. NASI then came up with guidance on Friday saying that those that received two shots of AstraZeneca should be prioritized over those who have received an mRNA, either as their second dose in a mixed dose situation or two shots of mRNA. So that's what the province has done. They've amended that. If you are one of those 83,000 some odd British Columbians who have received two shots of AstraZeneca, you will be notified six months after your second dose that is your time to book uh, your booster. I've heard from a lot of people in this group. Those boosters will likely start in mid-December. More more of them will start folding into January. Actually, it could be a little bit earlier than mid-December, uh, early December. I received two shots of AstraZeneca. Uh, I calculated six months after my first, and, and that lands me somewhere around uh, early to middle January. 
So, and I was near the tail end of those who have received two shots of AstraZeneca. You know, our colleague Keith Baldry, Premier John Horgan, both received two shots of AstraZeneca. They will receive their, they will be offered their booster shot a little bit earlier. So if you're in that category and you're listening, you will be notified through the provincial booking system when it is your turn uh, to book a booster. We know that AstraZeneca is highly effective, but it's not what we're seeing with the mRNAs. Jody, we did a story on this on Friday. What we're seeing in terms of the combination of AstraZeneca and mRNA or just mRNAs is like off the charts with how effective it is preventing the spread of this virus. When it comes to AstraZeneca, the effectiveness is lower, similar to the effectiveness of what we'd have with like a seasonal flu shot. Uh, it's somewhere in the 70s in terms of percentage of effectiveness. And it doesn't, and, and it also helps prevent severe illness as well. Right. All of That's that is leading to, to the province not being worried, but also ensuring Good. there are boosters. That's exactly where I was going to go next, Richard, because anyone who asks me questions about this type of thing, when they're like, oh, the efficacy, oh, it's, am I going to be, it's, yeah. you're protected from severe illness, hospitalization and death. It's just not as robust uh, of, and, and long lasting. Isn't it interesting, too, that Richard, uh, b- back when I had my second dose on February 21st, it was two days later. So I had that 28 day window. Two days after my second dose, it moved to 16 weeks. It moved to four months. And so many people were saying, oh my goodness, you're so lucky. You got in just in time. And in fact, now we've learned through yeah. science and watching the real world data, so important to have that real world data that it is that interval that matters a great deal as well, does it not? Yeah, and, and that's where I think the sweet spot, Dr. Henry said, they believe is between six to eight weeks now, but that uh, longer window um, of 16 weeks is also proven to be highly effective between doses. So all of those factors have contributed uh, among the immunized community that BC started seeing those breakthrough cases a little bit later than other jurisdictions uh, where the gap was always four weeks in the United States. We saw that in Ontario. So that's part of it. The, the struggle here continues to be, Jody, as you are well aware, those who are not vaccinated. That is where the pressure Indeed. continues to be on the system, is those who are unvaccinated getting sick, those that are unvaccinated spreading it to others, and then that getting into, in some cases, the children population where from five, from zero to 11, uh, they are not vaccinated. And so that is the real challenge. And the other big part of the press conference today, and I know it went fast, was the information health minister Adrian Dix provided around uh, surgeries being postponed and for two factors. One, healthcare workers that aren't immunized. They're now on leave. More than 3,000 of them across the province, Jody. In interior health, that's having severe challenges where at Kelowna General Hospital, they're having to cancel emergency room time because there's some uh, those that are serving that hospital who are not immunized. We know about clinics and Karameas and Grand Forks that are altering their schedules because people are not vaccinated and can't work in the system anymore. And then on top of that, the pressure due to either moving people from Northern Health or just the general pressure on the healthcare system, emergency room and operating time is being reduced in hospitals all across Metro Vancouver because of the unvaccinated. And that is a huge problem. We'll have a story on that on the news hour tonight. A lot of information on that today. Uh, that, you know, is a challenge that is going to be hard to overcome for this province as we continue to grapple through respiratory season.
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Glad to have you along here. We have our phone lines open at 604-280-9898 and star 9898 for Richard Zussman, our uh, reporter at the BC Legislature, your global news expert on all things COVID-19, certainly was in on today's briefing. As mentioned, typically the briefings happen on a Tuesday, but it is a very busy week uh, with government uh, press briefings, as you mentioned, and I should just slip in here that on the Jazz Joe Hall show today at three o'clock, they will be carrying the uh, mental health and addictions briefing that's coming up this afternoon. Uh, just a little programming note there. Uh, questions for you now, Richard, certainly many of those. I just wanted to touch on one more thing because you had an epic question at the end of the briefing. Um, and within it was the question about how uh Partially vaccinated employees who remain unvaccinated after three months may actually be terminated and how that might significantly impact long term uh, our health response, particularly going into this respiratory season. Yeah, my question was a bit of a journey today because I got a frog I loved in my it. throat halfway through. As you know, as a broadcaster, <laughs> Jody, like that's the greatest fear. I am feeling well. Yeah. I am doing well. I just had a frog in my throat and couldn't <laughs> battle through it. And then I tried to ask a multi-part question. But yes, th- this is one of the crucial pieces in this is, you know, if there are those, we know more than 3,000 workers, some of them may have only worked one day in the healthcare system. Some of them are lifelong employees who are experts in their field. This is going to have an impact. And Minister Dick said that there could be some moving of staff around to different health authorities. But because of where we are seeing these impacts at so many different areas in the province, it is going to be challenging. The province is acutely aware that the challenge is in interior health. Northern health as well, 4% of the staff there. Um, healthcare workers not vaccinated now on leave. In interior health, it's 5%. That's more than a 1,000 people in interior yeah. health. And so one of the challenges is the province is trying to support the health authorities. Right now, interior has been able to move workers around and you know, limit operating time and do some of this at some hospitals in order to try to um, lessen the blow that unvaccinated workers will have on the system. But it is going to be a really substantial challenge. All right, full phone board for Richard Zussman here. If you want to get in on it, 604-280-9898, star 9898. We begin our journey in Vancouver. Carrie, welcome to the show. What's your question for Richard Zussman? Uh, Yes, I wondered. I am a type 1 diabetic. My last uh, MNRA vaccine was June 10th. I'm under 70. So where do I fall in the booster shot? Yeah, good question, Carrie. So I'm not sure if you received a letter around being clinically extremely vulnerable. Uh, if so, because of your age, uh, you will fall into the second category where the boosters will start likely being unveiled uh, in the new year. Uh, right now, based on the brief information you gave me, uh, timing as well as condition, uh, you aren't seen yet as being uh vulnerable to the sense that it's needed right now in terms of those who are under the clinically extremely vulnerable list those getting the boosters currently are those who are immunocompromised uh, with uh, largely respiratory or sort of lung related uh, conditions and uh, certain cancers and, and issues like that there's a full list on the bc government website but based on your brief description uh, and the announcement that was made last week, you fall into that second phase and those boosters will start in January. You could get a notification earlier to book, but that would not be my expectation with the little information I have. 
best thing to do is to make sure you're registered. I yes. went to the Get Vaccinated BC site and just thought, you know what, I'm just going to double check. And I put my stuff in there, and sure enough, I got a new QR code and a booking number. And I thought, oh, well, I'm glad I checked that. And literally <laughs> two days later, I got the invite to book and, and was vaccinated. I could have gone that afternoon. So there's no longer this massive wait involved. There's no longer this, you know, Hunger Games sort of find your place to get <laughs> vaccinated sort of thing that we saw uh, before. The, the system works very, very well. So make sure you go to Get Vaccinated BC. Uh, if you Google that, it comes up. Dennis in North Vancouver, you are up next. Dennis, welcome. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, question for you. I wish I could remember the name of the lab and the doctor. It could have been Jawalski. I don't have it on my phone. But I was reading this thing, and this lab in San Francisco is studying the uh, B117, and they are saying that um, none of the vaccines will prevent infection of the B117, that it's that virulent. Is that correct? So I think B117 is Delta. And um, I'm just having a look here because they've used all these different names for the different viruses and, and we've moved now to using different terminology, but the vaccines are working effectively against all of the variants. And here in British Columbia, 100% of the cases are now Delta variant uh, and the vaccine continues to be effective against it. And the province continues to provide efficacy numbers uh, based on cases of COVID that is non-Delta and Delta, and the vaccine is holding up uh, consistently against both. Uh, there was some concern that uh, two doses of AstraZeneca uh, would be less effective against the Delta variant. We've seen a very marginal dip in that. But again, to the point Jody and I were making earlier, Dennis, is uh, these are highly effective vaccines. And yes, doctors all around the world continue to monitor variants to see what impact they may have on vaccine, but right now the vaccines we have are holding up well against the virus we see in our communities. Jody Vance in for Jill for the next couple of days. Glad to be with you. And uh, I'm getting some really nice emails. I just want to give a shout out to Jim and to Linda and Bob and Kathy. Everybody's saying it's so good to hear you back. It's nice to get a lovely email. I get all kinds of emails when I put out my email address, Jody at cknw.com. I read them. Sometimes people disagree with me, and that's cool too. We have uh, respectful discourse, if you will. But every now and then, uh, things get uncomfortable. Now, typically, my job here, obviously, is helping you navigate the news, right? You're busy. You want to know what's going on. We discuss the headlines. And we have those conversations with people who are involved in the subject matter. Now, I'm not used to being a headline which I was recently in the Globe and Mail. Now, if you go to their website, the Globe and Mail website, you can see the entire story. I'm not going to go through the whole thing of it. But the gist of it is really expressed in the headline that simply reads, Broadcaster Jody Vance feels relief after suspect arrested following years of online harassment. It's uh, accurate. I do feel relieved. I, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that it's rather unprecedented that there is an arrest for somebody who is causing harassment toward a victim of any walk, of any gender, of any race or religious following. It's just got to stop. So trying to get to a place where we all have meaningful action to take towards swift and also meaningful consequences is the key to where I want to go with this segment. Because within that story of what happened to me, which again, you can read at the Globe and Mail, there was a turning point where my harasser was identified to me. 
all of the evidence that I had gathered would then be needed to move forward to meaningful consequences, as I mentioned. And my next guest, who I didn't name in the column when I was interviewed, because I don't get to see the column before it goes to print. uh, I didn't name my next guest in the column, but he's given me permission to name him since. Uh, He's the person who used his knowledge of navigating the online world to help me know who had been harassing me for more than five years uh, while hiding behind anonymous names on emails and such. Jesse Miller is the founder of Mediated Reality, and Jesse joins us on the line now. Jesse, thank you for being with us. As always, Jody, great to be with you. Just wanted to lay out all of that because moving forward in this conversation, it is no longer about me. I'm not comfortable with it being all about me here, believe it or not. I want to talk about so many people who don't have a Jesse Miller in their back pocket and what what we all must do in our due diligence moving forward. And maybe we start, Jesse, with the mistakes that are often made uh, as one sort of I don't even know when when a, a back and forth on an email exchange all of a sudden takes a turn. What do we do? Uh, it depends on the circumstances, obviously. I mean, I think uh, one you and I have discussed what it means to have your employer or uh, you know your contractor uh, working for an organization uh, back up any of the tools that they provide to you, like email. Um, but, you know, it's funny, you know, through this process, too, myself as a, as a pundit, you know, I go on global, I, I come on CKNW often um, as an independent contractor who runs a small business. I don't have a lot of resources to be able to go to HR. And right. so in our a- employment lives, uh, we do have a lot of tools. And, and w- within that, you know, the professionalism of the organization, the uh, approach of the organization and how they address any form of unwanted inter- internet behaviors um, kind of is one of those things that just is expected today. And uh, the smaller the organization, the harder it may be. But most people usually turn to the idea that law enforcement has all the answers. And, and to be honest with you, calling non-emergency or 911 and having a patrol officer show up and, and talk about something that's happened on Snapchat or Instagram or even email uh, can be very limiting because that's not necessarily in the scope of their job as much as it is something that should be addressed by law enforcement. And sometimes it does require specialized units. Is that where we're headed? Should should we be looking at perhaps growing that sector of law enforcement or in the corporate community having those tools available? Because for someone like you, you were able to do seemingly what others would were just kind of like, I don't know what to do from here including law enforcement, you know, when it was like, well, we, do you know who it is? I was like, no. Okay. Well, keep monitoring it. Co- monitor your yeah, situation. I, <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, like, like my company, I, I've trained law enforcement on how to deal with these issues. And I've had the privilege of doing that in the sense of trying to knock down some of those barriers because um, the idea that law enforcement shows up at somebody's house and says, you know, well, just stay off Snapchat, just stay off Instagram. You know, that, that's not the answer for those who are victimized. But within that, when we consider the evolution, obviously, the larger the corporate entity, the more resources they're going to have. So in sports entertainment, you have uh, uh, sports leagues that will you know, protect their assets. And so when a NHL player is being targeted online or their families are, that's where the team or the league itself will take steps. And I mean, it's kind of somewhat ironic considering today's news that they, they would put more attention into Internet issues than they would uh, some of the issues that do face hockey players. But within that as well, just the concept that uh, 
corporate entities usually are about pre- protecting the brand. And, and so within that, it is about brand management. It's about risk assessment. Um, but more and more, the employers who do highlight that um, either internally or externally, they're going to do everything they can to help support issues that affect their employees, no matter gender, sexual orientation, race, background. Um, that right there is an appealing process when it comes to not only our work from home realities, but also just the idea of the choices that employees now have when they do choose an employer, because it seems like the employee is now in the driver's seat. Jody Vance in for Jill today and tomorrow, and we're continuing our conversation with Jesse Miller. He's a good friend of the program, good friend of mine, and founder of Mediated Reality, a social media educator and online security expert. And and more and more, we need, I think, uh, Jesse Miller's in in all levels of of corporate and government uh, front offices to assist where it has just become so normalized to harass one another online. And even now with this uh, story uh, unfolding in BC politics, like the, the face-to-face harassment that, that goes on. I mean, it, it's, it's all kind of gone next level. But when it comes to online security, where somebody probably wouldn't say to your face what they are saying from the egghead on Twitter or perhaps that uh, made-up Gmail account and what have you. So how best to protect ourselves uh, when online. If you've got a question about this, if you've had a situation and you need some advice on it, here's your chance. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And Jesse, before we get to the, the, the phone lines, can you, can you give us an idea of some of the most often made mistakes where we put our online security at risk, particularly with social media? Oh, specifically oversharing. I mean, the thing is that most of us share within a, a very kind of comfortable bubble of, of friends or colleagues. And I think one of the biggest issues is that we don't necessarily think about it until we get to those, those moments where uh, that information is used or weaponized against us. And so in certain manners, it is about uh, finding that balance and being comfortable with what you're sharing online. But the reality of it is, is that, um, you know, we also have to change how we approach this space of, of being online and offline because there is, there is no duality. They're interconnected. And so the way that you share on Instagram is very much reflected in the way that you tell your stories and the way that you connect with colleagues at work or uh, people in our communities. And that's where, at the end of the day, when uh, a a behavior becomes unwanted, uh, it it unfortunately then gets leveraged. And how people check in in real time can all of a sudden be of massive concern. It can be, but you know what's interesting? I mean, I, th- I think in a certain age demographic, we're still very kind of privatized in that space. But the newer, younger generation of social media users who have been born into a world of social media, they're not as concerned about that. I mean, there's, there's an expectation in that space that you're not going to cross those boundaries and that if you do, you're, you are the transgressor. You're the person who really should be held to an account. And, and in that, when we think about the corporate world where we have the majority of people who are maybe over 35, um, who kind of grew up using aspects of the Internet, but not necessarily, you know, born into it. Um, yeah. There is a very different expectation of, of privacy and, and holding back information when it comes down to corporate uh, meeting private. And so it is interesting when you, when you look at individuals who are 25 and younger, there's a lot of, of, of plurality in the sense of using these tools in, in a hybrid. And when somebody does use them in a negative way, there's almost a community that kind of pounces and says, no, 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 this is not appropriate. And that's where we see a lot of the accountability pieces on social media, especially with an anonymized accounts holding people to account. 
Fascinating, right? Our digital citizenship back into play and generationally different. Let's go to the phone lines and connect. Uh, let's go to Surrey first here and Perdina. Perdina, welcome to the show. What are your thoughts here? I was I was involved with two ladies, one in Alberta, one in uh, Toronto, in a fundraising venture, and I was very successful. Giving as an example, if they made ten dollars, I made seventy, and. Uh, then I found out that, you know, my gut was telling me there's something wrong here, and I did, I had not done due diligence. I found out that they were very crooked, and I walked away from them. But I was polite. I said, I don't feel comfortable, so I am resigning. The harassment started. They wanted all my contact information, access to my uh, email account, and I just ignored it, and it lasted for two months. They, uh, they even sent a letter to my lawyer. So finally, I copied everything, and that's the most important thing when you're getting these emails, copy them. And I went to the RCMP, and within, a, within an hour of the RCMP looking at these emails, they had contacted Alberta and Toronto and told them that criminal harassment charges were pending if, and a file had been opened, and if they contacted me one more time, they would be charged. And I haven't heard from them since. Well, that sounds like swift and meaningful consequences. Perdina, thank you for sharing your story. Interesting, Jesse. And wouldn't it be great if there were more stories like that with one quick phone call and sharing of information? Because it sounds like Perdina was precariously perched in one of those online scams that could have taken over her life fairly quickly. Yeah, and it's interesting when we kind of look at the age gra- demographics too. We don't see, um, you know, a lot of online targeting when it comes to younger users as much as we do actually older. And and so in that with Facebook and, um, you know, the community groups and things like that, we, we traditionally see very kind of positive interactions. But then once you get to scams or individuals, um, you know, that Facebook community is right now one of those spaces that very much is being targeted with individuals who are 40, 40 and over. But, you know, just to flip that around for a moment and just to consider the response time. I mean, I, I, I'd like to be idealistic and think that police would be able to kind of recommend charges that way. And it's not necessarily the way it works in British Columbia or, or Ontario, for that matter. But in Alberta, it can be because RCMP uh, recommend charges. And so sometimes right. it is just the idea that a police officer is contacting and having this conversation compared to somebody just sending an email saying, please don't send me anything anymore. So one of the things we have to consider here is that in law enforcement, we, we expect them to be on the streets. We expect them to be doing, quote unquote, the right thing when it comes to enforcing laws and, and, and making sure that there's a balance when it comes to um, how, how they interact with individuals. But the power of law enforcement calling somebody and saying, hey, you sent an email, that, that can be enough when it comes to certain situations. But uh, ideally here, we are looking at individuals being more digitally literate and having a better approach to digital citizenship and not necessarily putting themselves at the reliance of law enforcement. I mean, this is what those those instances usually require chronic, chronic communication and threats to safety as opposed to just feeling like an unwanted communication has been sent. So in that, we have to be fully aware that not everything requires law enforcement, but at the same time, you know, copying and backing up and making sure that you have information available when needed, that is that is key. Jody Vance with you. Glad to have you along. You know, last weekend I was at a family gathering and a relative of mine is a frontline healthcare worker. She mentioned that I was likely the most at risk person at the gathering. I was 
kind of taken aback by that. And she said, well, given how early you received your vaccination and how close together the interval interval between dose one and dose two was, I got my vaccine back in January because I was essential caregiver for my dad who was in long-term care at the time. I ended up writing about all this at the orca.ca, the, the January 10th and February 21st, my dose one, dose two, and that they were 28 days apart. And then two days after I got my second dose, that interval window actually changed to 16 weeks to four months. Remember that? Remember when that happened? People were, you know, political about it and saying, oh, my goodness, you're so lucky to get your shot within 28 days. Maybe not. Dr. Danuta Skaronsky, who you've heard on this program before, is the epidemiology lead at the BC Center for Disease Control. And Dr. Skaronsky discovered, she's actually the scientist who figured out that greater lasting immunity comes with a larger window between doses. That's now suggested to be between six and eight weeks. Uh, Dr. Skaronsky is being written up in all kinds of prestigious medical journals worldwide, including the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. But I want to talk through the science of boosters, right? Because as I also wrote in uh, the ORCA and now have updated over the weekend, um, I went to the Get Vaccinated BC website just to make sure that I was registered, which I'm glad I did because I got a new booking number. And then two days later, I got an invitation to book my booster. And then I got my booster on Saturday. I posted about it. And who posted back at me is our next guest who also got his booster on Saturday. You may recognize Dr. Barinder Narang. He is the co-founder of This Is Our Shot.ca campaign as well as a family physician. As always, great to talk to you, doctor. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jody. I want to dive in on a thread that you put up on Twitter this weekend about specifically about the boosters, the hows, the whys, the who's. There's a lot of confusion around this. And Dr. Bonnie Henry today at at the um, briefing, the Monday briefing that they moved from Tuesday because of a busy week, she had this to say specifically about AstraZeneca um, immunized people here in British Columbia and how they are really going to be first up on the booster. Have a listen to this. Individuals who receive two doses of AstraZeneca have had a waning of protection from infection. Thankfully, they still have very strong good protection for serious illness, but uh, lower protection against infection. And as a result, people who receive two doses of AstraZeneca will be receiving invitations for their booster dose at six months. And this may be sooner than other healthy adults in the community where we know there's very good, strong protection that's lasting well. So that's Dr. Henry from a little earlier today. So that adds another piece to the puzzle. As you laid out so succinctly, as I said, on on social media this weekend, you're a great follow on social media, by the way. Uh, So, doctor, take us through what we need to know about third dose slash booster shots here in B.C. Yeah, thanks, Jody. And I... um... There's a there's a lot that's come out this last week, and I think that uh, as we see this um, at this phase where we are in the pandemic, evidence is coming um, from all different um, areas, and it's coming rapidly, and it's coming in very large sample sizes. And so that's what and that's what we want to see. We want to see high quality data with representation in you know diverse communities around the world, which are being impacted by the pandemic, as we know we're in this together. So. Um, let's look at like one of the biggest studies that came out this weekend, and that's uh, 
um, out of Israel. And this is over a million people in this um, study that was published in The Lancet. And what they showed is that um, after at least five months after uh, a two-dose interval, knowing with the caveat that Israel initially did have a shorter window, like you already talked about, and so that they, um, you know, got hit hard at the end of the summer, August, September, and now um, they're doing great again. And this was really uh, a large part in due to this um, uh, booster program that they implemented, which did show that um, when they looked at vaccine effectiveness evaluated at least seven days after receipt of the third dose, um, they, it was estimated to be a 93% benefit for admission to hospital, 92% for severe disease, and 81% for death. So it's all these kind of big metrics we're looking at. Like we, we want to make sure we're minimizing that the hard impact that can, one, kill people, and obviously um, uh, the morbidity associated with long COVID, and of course the stress on the hospitals. And so that's one study, but there have been a few of those now that are coming up and suggestive, and that's why BC announced their program last Tuesday. NACI put their recommendations out on Friday. Now, with AstraZeneca specifically, um, we knew that the um, the two-dose AstraZeneca series had been a little less in identify in protecting against cases, and that's been uh, the trend since the vaccine came out. But it is obviously dropping faster. Um, BC's always been very consistent that using our own data to inform our guidelines from the work of Dr. Skoronsky and her team. Um, and we have a strong BCCDC um, kind of infrastructure to evaluate vaccine effectiveness. And this is just another indication that um, the surveillance that they're doing is working. So I just want to let people know we're, we're, we're speaking with Dr. Barinder Narang. You've seen him before. You've heard him before. If you follow him on social media, you're getting straight facts here. He's a family physician and the co-founder of the This Is Our Shot campaign. And Dr. Narang, whenever some, whenever one, it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's a member of the media or somebody from uh, the world of science, when you put it out there that you're being vaccinated, inevitably there's some trolling to be found. Can you give some context to those who say, oh, now you've had a third dose. When's your fourth dose? How about your 300th dose? You know, you can't vaccinate your way out of this. Today, we heard Dr. Henry specifically, not just for COVID-19, but specific to vaccination, say it has been the single greatest tool in protecting civilization over hundreds of years. Like vaccines have been so incredibly important for the medical community. Can you can you speak to those who might be falling down the rabbit hole of disinformation when it comes to getting even their first immunization, never mind a booster shot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look, we can add this to the list like measles, chickenpox, and meningitis, or meningococcus specifically, polio, tetanus, so many um, communicable viruses that we don't, we're fortunate that we don't see a ton of today. And I think um, it's a fair question to ask if, you know, how many of these are we going to need? Um, and it is premature for anyone to promise that we will not need more in the future. But what we do know is that there have been many successful um, vaccines that are three-dose series vaccines, like the hepatitis um, B vaccine, uh, hepatitis A vaccine, uh, HPV um, vaccine. And we know that that third dose, um, and whether that's usually about six to 12 months uh, away from the initial C, uh, primary series, um, sometimes that can uh, confer lifelong immunity. So it really, uh, you know, it comes down to that fact of like, how fast is the virus mutating? Um, how, and those new mutations that come out, how competitive are they <clears throat> in the real world? 
Um, and we see that there have been other um, variants that have popped up after Delta, but they're not predominating here. Delta is still 100% of the cases here. And so, yeah, I think what we're seeing is that while COVID, uh, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus is mutating, Delta is the predominant one right now. There aren't other ones that are out-competing it. We know the vaccines we have are very effective against it. So we, we do expect that we will have long-term. Now, I can't say a couple of years from now we might not need a booster. And if we do, I will trust the science behind it and I'll line up for it. Jody Vance in for Jill today and tomorrow. Burinder Narang, Dr. Burinder Narang is our guest here to answer your questions about vaccines for COVID-19 or the booster shots, which is a hot topic certainly over the last number of days and particularly today with the news from Dr. Bonnie Henry that those who had a two-course dose of AstraZeneca now will be joining that sort of front-of-the-line group to get the booster shot. And uh, Dr. Narang, I hope you're ready because, as I said, the phone board is full <laughs> at 604-280-9898, star 9898. We start our tour with Dave in Maple Ridge. Welcome, Dave. Uh, hi, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Uh, good. Uh, my question is, uh, my first shot was Moderna and my second was Pfizer. So what should I be looking for in booster shot? Good question. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Now, um, there's one, first of all, there's no um, great answer for that. Um, now, there, there was one study that came out that looked at this very situation, and it looked at what are um, two different types of antibodies called your binding and your neutralizing antibodies. And for people who got Pfizer first and Moderna second, um, um, that, well, actually, they didn't even compare these two. No, they did. Um, yeah, Pfizer first, Moderna second. They did find that for if they, you got boosted with Moderna, you were going to get maybe um, a slightly better response. Either way, uh, whatever one you get is going to be fine. It's interesting, though. Uh, never before, yeah. really, COVID, would any of us really ask what the brand name is of the vaccine that we receive? And yet here we are. I did go in for my booster yeah. on Saturday. And after they gave me all the paperwork, I said, well, which one am I having? And they said, oh, you're having another Pfizer. I'm like, OK, third shot of Pfizer it is, knowing what you just referenced there with Moderna. And then the RN actually mentioned that the Moderna dose is actually a somewhat larger dose. And then Dr. Henry at this morning's presser said something about boosters perhaps being a half dose of Moderna. So the yeah. science really is is evolving as we speak. Let's uh, head to White Rock and connect with John. Welcome to the show, John. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. So I'm uh, AstraZeneca, two doses. I was yeah. uh, on the first day, June 9th, was my second dose. Uh, so And I'm going overseas uh, this weekend. And I'm not back until very close to the time when I'm eligible for my third dose. And is there any way that I can move up the line to get it done before I go, or can I buy it? So I, um, what I would suggest is now, you're, if you got your second dose in June, that means you're at about four months right now, which means that you have pretty good protection. Um, the, but with these booster types, and I'll take this in spirit of what we know about booster vaccines previously is that you don't want to give them before the recommended time because um, even then, this is what was demonstrated out with our primary series, that the longer we waited, the more robust response you had. And so the risk of doing it sooner, um, and I don't think you'd be able to through the BC um, infrastructure, but I've heard of people that are going across the border and 
are able to get things done. Um, I don't recommend that personally. Uh, but I would say you're, you've got good protection right now. If you're going overseas, use your other layers of protection while you're there. Um, and follow the public health guidelines where you are. And um, you should get it at the recommended time when you come back. There you go. Hopefully that answers your question, John. Thanks for calling. 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell. We're speaking with Dr. Barinder Narang, family physician and co-founder of the thisisourshot.ca uh, campaign. Uh, Bobby in Burnaby, you're up next. What's your question? Hi there, Dr. Uh Thank you for taking my call. Just wondered, you know, it's about the erosion of authority. With all these uh, people that have gotten laid off from the um, health authorities, from janitors to nurses, that included some doctors. And, you know, people are coming out, people of, of supposed authority saying, I'm not getting a shot, I don't think they work, or whatever. And if they're actual doctors, how do you reconcile that kind of, they're saying it on their authority and you're saying what you say on your authority, as a, as a working public, how do we say, well, who, which doctor is correct? I mean, I, I don't know how to reconcile the difference. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think that, um, you know, I'll take this through the lens of like how when we came together and formed the South Asian COVID task force, is that one of my concerns as a physician was is that there would be other people that would come on the radio um, and answer a different question in a, in a completely different way than I would have, and sometimes contradictory. And so what we said is what we need to do is come to consensus agreement on this, um, on approaches um, with a few other doctors that uh, do media appearances. One, to educate people, because you're absolutely right. You have no way to differentiate four people with MDs behind their name and, and say who has, uh, whose voice has, should be uh, weighted higher. So now what I can tell you about when it comes to the vaccine question is that um, we're, we, we think that we're at like 97 to 98% um, physicians vaccinated in BC. And that's after discussions with the president of Dr. Uh, Dr. BC, Dr. Matthew Chow. And so by far, 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 far majority, we have consensus agreement on the safety of the vaccines. And as Dr. Henry said in the briefing today, if your physician or other healthcare worker um, does not believe in the science behind vaccination, then, uh, you know, that they, they don't really have business being in healthcare right now. You know what? Uh, further to that, Dr. Narang, we actually have yeah. Dr. Henry. Tim French, if you can cue that one up. This is Dr. Bonnie yeah. Henry answering a question on some physicians in British Columbia who have taken it upon themselves to write up fake vaccine certificates and certificates for mask mandates. Have a listen to this. Yeah, so we have put, I've been working very closely with the College of Physicians and we've put out guidance for physicians on, uh, you know, what constitutes a valid medical exemption and what constitutes fraud, to be frank. And uh, yes, there are no, uh, this is not, I've seen a number of the so-called certificates from a number of physicians. And yes, the college uh, has the responsibility as the regulatory authority uh, to um, reach out and, and take action. So there is that piece of this puzzle as well. It's not lost on the health authority, our provincial health officer, about those physicians who are taking that contrarian stance. Uh, Dr. Narang, I want to get to uh, an emailer here. Jen just uh, emailed me and said, I'm very skeptical about getting anything but a third dose of AstraZeneca as a booster. Not concerning efficacy. I simply have travel aspirations and I feel that may be jeopardized by future mixing of vaccines. Is there any AstraZeneca left for us? What do you say to Jen? Um, I will... 
Yeah, I think that's um, a fair question. I think um, one thing that we did that was mentioned last week um, in the initial announcement is that uh, to be considered fully vaccinated in British Columbia, um, it is uh, the two-dose vaccine is what's going to be required. And that goes with, like, you know, vaccine cards and mandates and, you know, that recognition of being fully vaccinated. So now, again, I can't predict what's going to happen six months from now, and I, I, from now, and I expect that's why Jen is skeptical about it. Um, and, but yeah. what we do know is international regular, uh, regulatory bodies have responded to the science coming out of BC. And so if BC, CDC, um, and our vaccine, vaccine leads are recommending this, we know the evidence is sound behind it. We don't, um, I haven't seen anything to suggest that AstraZeneca should be used as a booster because the mRNA vaccines have shown to be far more effective. And so I would recommend her, you know, if you don't want to get it yet, um, wait to see what the science plays out. But you, I don't think you should expect that you'll be able to get a third dose of an AstraZeneca for a booster. First offered is likely the best. I learned that, I think, from you, mm-hmm. Dr. Barinder Narang. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate you. All right. No worries. Thank you for having me. Jody Vance with you. Thanks for joining us. Jill with a couple of days off here. She will be back on Wednesday. I want to turn now and a sports story that you need not be a sports fan to have heard about. This the story of now former NHLer Kyle Beach. He had an interview with TSN's Rick Westhead that rocked the sports world, talking about how he had been sexually assaulted a decade ago while a member of the Chicago Blackhawks. The Chicago Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup the year that Kyle was referencing, where he did go to superiors and report that a uh, member of the team, uh, of the, uh, the, the training team and the coaching staff, had assaulted him sexually. It is one that stops you in your tracks when you listen to the initial interview. Today is a day that we heard from the commissioner of the NHL, on this story. Uh, Gary Bettman held a press briefing by Zoom, and uh, when asked specifically what his reaction was to the TSN interview with Kyle Beach, Gary Bettman said this. My reaction was I was horrified. It was emotional. I was distressed. uh, And I knew that he had obviously been suffering just by watching him. And I wanted to make sure that we were continued to be focused on how to deal with what was now in front of us. And I was sorry. Actually said the word sorry. This is a a day that we will uh, look back to and see if there was meaningful change. I want to bring in a global BC sports reporter and anchor. You know him, you love him. Jay Janauer is on the line with us. Jay, thanks for doing this. Jody, thank you uh, for reaching out. It's unfortunate we're going to have to, you know, have this conversation, but I think it's an important one to have. It is. And, you know, Jay, sports is an escape and a release for so many. People want to look up to their heroes in the game and trust that everybody within each and every professional organization has been vetted to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. And yet we have seen time and again, not just in the NHL, but in other sports. We can see it with soccer. We've seen it in women's gymnastics. We, I mean, you can almost rattle off how there has Mm -hmm. been some sort of uh, horrifying event, whether it be a harassment related or sexual harassment or worse. Um, what do you see unfolding here in the Kyle Beach story from, from your learned perspective? 
you know what, Jody? Um, I would like to see a significant change, but under the leadership of Gary Bettman, I don't see significant change happening. I've interviewed Gary Bettman numerous times. I listened to his uh, his Zoom today. He represents the owners, Jody. Uh, jo- yeah, uh, Jody. Yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't represent the game. I don't think he represents the players. And the, the NHL office was made aware of Kyle Beach's situation almost a year ago in December by the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, the Chicago Blackhawks told Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and the league basically that there was no merit to what was what was being alleged by Kyle uh, by, by Mr. Beach. Yeah. I read that report, Jody, last Tuesday. I was sick to my stomach. Um, I was mortified about by what came out uh, in, in that report. Um, it's nice to see, to see Gary Bettman say that he's sorry for what Kyle Beach has gone through, um, but what he has done for punishment in terms of the Chicago Blackhawks, a $2 million penalty, Jody, it, it's a laugh. Um, this is an organization that covered this up for over a decade that did nothing to assist um, a very high prospect that they had. This is a young man's life who has been ruined. Um, he's 31 years old, never played a game in the National Hockey League, which was his dream. Um, he's got demons that hopefully uh, he'll be able to rid himself uh, of. But I'm just, um, I'm really disappointed in, in, in the game of, of hockey, and I'm really disappointed in the leadership. A $2 million fine for the Chicago Blackhawks when somebody's life is ruined, that's one gate, Jody. I mean, yeah. this organization... Yeah makes millions upon millions and a two million dollar fine what does that say Uh, you know and and the fact that this has been covered up for so long i'm disgusted by the nhl and and for how little that they've really changed it's an old boys network jody you were involved in sports for quite a few years um we know the inner workings of it you know the hockey men who are involved in, in hockey well hockey men a lot of them they're not they're not people jody they're not sensitive individuals they they live by the code and and I just, I want to see change, Jody, but I hate to be pessimistic. I don't know if it's going to come. Well, we've seen, you know, historically, we've seen others. And my jaw did drop when Gary Bettman was asked specifically about Sheldon Kennedy. And yeah. the response being, like, you know, well, he wasn't a part of the NHL. It's like, what? What, what does it matter? What does it yeah. matter indeed? Horrifying at every level. It is on the responsibility of the major league top tier to be thinking about all of their prospects. Younger all the time they are coming into a system that could have, you know, the likes of the abusers that saw Sheldon Kennedy and Theron Fleury and and others, unnamed others, the hazing we've heard, Jay. You mentioned that, you know, having been in sports long enough, you, you you hear the the stories you see it sometimes and and this being you know served up in such a way that it is absolutely irrefutable yep. because the honesty and the bravery of Kyle Beach applause to the man who who stepped up to say you know what I'm saying this out loud so it happens to no one else and for for Gary Bettman to just be like you know dust some change off the corner of the Chicago Black, Blackhawks uh, uh, bank account just seems flat yeah, and, and for your listeners, uh, Jody, who aren't completely up to, to speed with the situation, I mean, we're talking about Kyle Beach, first-round draft pick, all kinds of promise, called up to be a black ace. They're, they're the players that are kept in the reserves in case there's injuries. They practice on their own, but they're part of the team. And Brad Aldrich was a video coach. Um, he had power over these players. He would work with them on a daily basis. 
He would show them video. He was in a position of authority where, where he could influence a, a young person's career. And, and you know, pe- some people just don't understand the power that exists. You know, people are like, well, how could this happen to a hockey player who's six foot two, six foot three? They're totally missing the point. You know, yeah. we're talking about somebody who was sexually assaulted. I don't care if it's male. I don't care. I don't care gender, regardless. This was somebody who had something wrongfully done to him, went to a superior, told them what transpired, which is what you're supposed to do, and Chicago Blackhawks did nothing. They swept it under the rug, Jody, because they wanted to win a Stanley Cup. And I know pro sports is all about winning. That attitude has to change. When you have somebody in your organization say says, this is what's happened to me, you need to do more than just say, we'll take a look into it. You need to go into it. You need to call the police. None of that happened. We've only got like 30 seconds left here. Do you think there, that an independent body, uh, as opposed yes. to the hotline that yes. Batman was referencing, do you think that'll help? I think for sure, Jody. I, I, think, you, I think you need eyes that aren't involved in pro sports. You don't need people who, who are hockey men. Sheldon Kennedy would be, would, would be great because he's experienced he? it. But you need independent eyes. You need people to look out for humanity, not yeah. for winning and losing. We need yeah. people to look out for humanity. With fresh eyes and the power to do something about it swiftly and meaningfully to protect the victim, mm-hmm. not the perpetrator. Jay Janauer, thanks for having this difficult conversation with me. I really do appreciate your time today. No problem. We need to keep on talking about it, Jody. Jody Vance with you, Jill, with an extra long, well-deserved weekend here. I'm here today and tomorrow. Right now, I want to dive in on what has been an ongoing conversation for quite some time. Too long, many people in Vancouver, certainly residents of Vancouver would say, but even those who visit uh, our fair city, thinking that it is the safe town it once was. That has certainly evolved and changed in recent years, and most definitely since the desperation of COVID-19, as well as an affordability crisis, an opioid crisis, homeless issues, just people living in poverty and, and having really nowhere to go and, and having that desperation piece of this puzzle. Uh, the escalation of anger just overarching in society has to come into play as well. It is a topic of conversation that we have here at CKNW been having conversations with uh, candidates for mayor of the city of Vancouver, as well as the current mayor, Kennedy Stewart, uh, who was on the Jazz Joe Hall's show uh, yesterday, yesterday, no, not yesterday, Friday, excuse me. Um, I just heard a promo for it from uh, Jazz's uh, show. And it's, it's important to continue to have these discussions and try and figure out how to stem the tide. The, the, Small businesses who are dealing with the smash and grab, repeated smash and grab on their businesses where they're struggling just to keep the doors open. Uh, We're hearing those personal stories. Any street you walk down now in Vancouver, you can see a smashed window or graffiti emblazoned down a piece of property in some way shape or form. And my colleague, my co-host for Unspun Podcast at the Orca.ca, George Affleck, former Vancouver City Councillor, speaks to the need to not allow those smashed windows and the graffiti to continue to be a blemish on our city because a little of that breeds more of that. That is a concern, uh, certainly people smarter than I, uh, have pointed to as something that uh, escalates the the damage to the property of the small business owner. Uh, earlier today on the Mike Smith Show, Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young was on to talk about crime in the city. Have a listen. 
when I look at the stats from the VPD comparing, and they're comparing to 2019 now, remembering that 2020 was a pandemic year, so life as we knew it shifted for everybody that year. What's really concerning is the amount of serious um, crimes that are up, hate-motivated incidents, serious assaults, things like violence, uh, shoplifting, um, and also just a lot of break-ins. It's so much. Even we heard from this weekend, Halloween weekend, how the VPD was completely overwhelmed because there just isn't enough people power, people in uniforms to, you know, police our city streets. There's so much happening. And the the discussions online about the amount of fireworks, fireworks are outlawed while there were fireworks everywhere. That was a huge trending discussion in the city of Vancouver and Metro Vancouver, for that matter, uh, over the course of Halloween night. It's a piece of this greater puzzle, and it's a very difficult one to solve. Certainly something that is going to come into play as we count down to the next municipal election here uh, in our area, October 15th, 2022. The countdown, yes, in earnest is now on, and we want to continue speaking with the candidates to give us their solutions to this incredibly complex problem. And for his perspective, very happy to welcome to the show, John Cooper, the NPA candidate for mayor of Vancouver. John, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks very much for having me on, Jody. So the, I don't even know, $20,000 question, we'll call it. Uh, What do you do if you're the mayor? How do you take meaningful steps towards curbing what is clearly escalating crime in our city? Well, the first thing that I would do is change the tone. Uh, Our current mayor has basically spent the last three years throwing Chief Adam Palmer and the VPD under the bus. And I would just like to point out that I think that uh, our VPD are a very progressive police force. I think they do a tremendous job. I'd also like to thank our first first responders who are are really working hard under very trying uh, circumstances. And one of the most alarming things is that we're seeing... Assaults on officers are are up tremendously, and we're also seeing these unprovoked random assaults that are happening across the city. So this is a big problem, but it's going to take steps. And the first step is to say you have confidence in the police force and you're not breaking down the morale of the VPD, which I think has been happening for three years, and I think it's very counterproductive. The other thing I'd like to point out is... um, you know, I was born in Vancouver. My father was born in Vancouver. I have a deep understanding of this city. I know the neighbors of this city. And we need to try and find a way to work together to affect change. Because I believe we really have a bright, bright future in Vancouver. And so when I talk to, I know, um, you know, John Claritas, who owns the Marquee Liquor Store on Davie, uh, he called me. I went down and met with him. And he showed me the circumstances around his store. Um, I met with the uh, president of the, the, the Gastown BIA, who said they had a meeting with the mayor at the beginning of his term, but then there was absolutely zero follow-up. We need a mayor, and I plan to be that mayor with my MPA team, who is going to get out into the community and really listen to what's happening and come up with solutions. So uh, I have some other steps that I'd like to go through. We need to sort of eliminate these silos. So the police, businesses, and city departments need to work together. When I say that, for instance... We've seen in the neighborhood that I live in, the Olympic Village, we've seen a number of stalking kind of incidents in in the square and around the village. The lights have been out, the center lights have been out in that village. I've reported it. I'm told, yes, there is a work order, but there's no action. We need to make sure that where we can, we're removing graffiti, we're making sure the lights work, we're, we're making sure people are feeling safe. We need some civic pride back. 
And we seem to have lost that. And when, when former Councillor Affleck talks about graffiti, I can tell you every time I walk around the city, I see more and more and I see very little removal of it. It's really quite sad, too, that there is an entire event now that celebrates graffiti, you know, doing the murals, the the Main Street Festival. And there's beautiful artwork that is adorning buildings that is a celebration of all artisans and artists. And yet, even there, those pieces of art are then tagged with graffiti. Like, this used to be a city where it felt as though those things were respected. There was that piece of character and and appreciation that was prevalent here in Vancouver. And it is it a matter, John? Uh, I'm not I'm not 100% sure the answer to this question, so I hope it's a fair one to ask of you or, or to give your perspective on at least. Is it fair to say that this city has grown up exponentially more quickly than the police department uh, has grown to counterbalance that, specifically and particularly in a time where there are calls to, quote unquote, defund the police and not allow street checks for reasons of targeting of marginalized uh, ethnic communities and and, and socioeconomic uh sectors and it, it's just so complex is there a way to actually grow chief palmer's team in a way that is balanced with all of these other concerns well i think there is and i think the mayor you know recently the last budget actually froze the police budget and and chief palmer went before council and explained that that was going to make things very difficult and uh they went went along and they, they've made some decisions this council that are quite perplexing for instance they put a uh overdose prevention site right across from a children's playground and a park in Emory Barnes Park. Now, they had what they called is a community agreement or whatever, good behavior, but there was, there's no teeth, there's no enforcement of it. So we're, we're actually creating, uh, in some cases, a situations that actually exacerbate the problem. And, and I really think, um, you know, the mayor is chair of the police board as well. Another thing that he's done is he stepped down as his role in his role as spokesman for the police board. I'd be honored to be the chair of the police board because I think that it, it's a very important part of the mayor's job to ensure that there is good communication between these various, whether it be the police department or various departments of the city, so they're all working together. You know, if um, if we got the group, if we got all these departments together and said, look, this we're going to make let's say Gastown a priority and Yale Town a priority, and we want to make sure all the lights work, we want to make sure the crosswalks are painted, we want to make sure the graffiti is cleaned up, we want to put a shine back on our city, I think we would start to see that civic pride come back, and also, which is really the basis of a civil society, and somehow uh, we've lost that, and the mayor seems to be oblivious to it, completely oblivious to it, and, and I'm just I'm kind of shocked when I heard him on, on uh, CKNW, I was like, it feels like he's asleep at the wheel. I will say that Commissioner or Councillor Di Genova put forward a motion recently uh, trying to prioritize uh, public safety. And what happened? They deleted her time frame and they deleted the public participation part of it. So th- the whole council, I think, has fallen into a state of almost they're not getting it, that they're talking about it, but they're not doing anything. And uh, I think we need to bring back a civic government that's going to really get out there in the community and and listen to residents and make some positive change. And and certainly, you know, Melissa's going to run a game for council with the NPA and it's going to be on my team and I'm really proud to have her on my team. 
We're with John Cooper, who is the NPA candidate for mayor, as you heard him mention right there. And John, I have to challenge just a little bit on the, well, not a little bit, I have to challenge on the Gastown piece, because calling Gastown and, and needing to polish it up and clean it up and make sure lights fix, anybody who's driven on the downtown east side or walked the, the, the streets of the downtown east side in recent weeks and months and even years for that matter, sees a problem that is not improving even with exorbitant amounts of taxpayer dollars being flooded into uh, that uh, area of our city. Is there a meaningful action that can be taken by a mayor of this city to improve the life and the livelihoods of those who find themselves living rough, living on the streets of Vancouver? Well, there's two components. And, and obviously, one of the things that seems to be missing in the conversation a lot is treatment. Treatment, treatment, treatment. We're not getting people into treatment we're warehousing them in hotels without proper supervision, and it's a recipe for disaster, quite frankly. But when I talk about Gastown, what I'm saying is during COVID, we didn't have any of the cruise ships there. If you drive down Gastown or walk down Gastown, you see the pavement is broken, that the streets smell of urine, there's feces on the street. The, there are businesses that are there and have been there for years successfully. To me, the time to fix it was when it's been a bit quiet down there. We could do some work down there. We haven't spent a lot of money on Gastown. There's been no improvements in Gastown in years, and it should be a shining example of what Vancouver could be. You know, some of these neighborhoods that we've built in Vancouver, if you look at, if you take it, Leal Town, the Olympic Village, uh, these were industrial areas that have actually been transformed, and people are downtown. The big difference between, say, a Calgary and Vancouver is if you're in Calgary at night, there's not a lot of not a lot of residents or people on the streets. They go home to the suburbs. We built a really great city here, and now we're starting to lose it because people are afraid to come out of their buildings at night. They don't want to walk down the street, and that is the slow death of a city unless you can turn that around. And I believe you can turn it around, and I think we do have a bright future. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett as she is filling in for Simi Sarah. Simi's birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday to Simi. And we are continuing our conversation with John Cooper, NPA candidate for mayor of Vancouver. And John, I got to tell you, the phone board has lit up. So let's keep it tight and bright here so we can get to as many callers as possible. All right. We're going to start with Ed in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Ed. Well, thank you. Um, I just drove through downtown Vancouver from North Vancouver and drove down Granville Street, and I was shocked to see it starting to look very much like East Hastings. Uh, Blanked-up windows, uh, people on the sitting down on the sidewalk selling whatever. Uh, one guy was shooting up in his arm, another was drinking beer, and another guy was peeing on the wall. So to me, the decay is evident everywhere in Vancouver, and we really need... A fresh look. We need a fresh look at this city. We need to support the police force. I'm totally in favor of what he's talking about. I don't think the average citizen realizes how bad it is and how much decay we have in what was once, I think, the most beautiful city in North America. But boy, we've, we've got a big problem, and it's a mess. And I drove down Hastings uh, this summer street, I couldn't believe the jungle on East Hastings. It was a jungle. Uh, this is terrible. This can't happen. Right now, my wife and I have stopped going downtown Vancouver, period. We used to go down to restaurants, and uh, we'd love to go to Gastown and go to Spaghetti Factory. Nothing. 
We're doing everything we're doing now in Burnaby. The city downtown is in decay. Thank you for your call, Ed. You know, John, I think Ed speaks for many people who have uh, perhaps spent the last number of decades living in this area and seeing the de-evolution of, of our city streets and really the sadness of the impoverished. That's one thing. But the crime piece, the safety and security piece, is it time for us to perhaps have a meaningful way to bring back some uh, order to our streets? Well, I, I think it's exactly true. I, you know, if you go down Hastings Street, I mean, I, you know, Hastings used to be a vibrant street full of businesses, certainly uh, major department stores. I'm going back a ways, but if you, yep. the last time I drove by there where Army and Navy has been turned into a shelter, the whole block is graffiti for a block. There are chop shops right on the street, uh, bikes being disassembled, stolen bikes, I mean, it's it's unbelievable to see, and we seem to be tolerating this. And the other thing that concerns me about the fact that, you know, when the mayor comes on and says that, uh, you know, statistically, crime in all categories is down. Well, I think the situation is people have given up calling because they they know, unless there's a serious incident, there is not going to be a response because the police are quite frankly overwhelmed. And uh, that's, so that's, a, that's later, so in that right? Situ- that's yeah. In that situation. Nothing happens. If you're looking for data to support your argument, you can pretty much find it. The fact of the matter is when we can go to an average of four a day, stranger interactions, like criminal interactions, it does change how many, half of society at, at least moves around this city. Women do not feel safe in this city anymore. There's groping and grabbing and attacks and stranger danger that is it's we're just not used to it in this part of the world and and something some meaningful action uh, must be taken and certainly that's reflected in our phone board john i wish i had more time to chat with you uh people are certainly uh invested in this i might say but i'm up against the clock here so sure. I, I have to say i appreciate your time and yeah, uh, just, let's keep this just, conversation yeah can i just finish with one thing i just want to say that you know the npa has been a party that's been elected 11 mayors built a great city over time Last election, people wanted a mixed council, and what they got is a council that's not moving, they're not looking after the basic issues of the city, and we need to get a group in there that can affect positive change. And I do still believe we have a very bright future in the city.